So great to see all of you today. Thanks for that beautiful prayer, Margaret. She headed up our nursery uh, the last couple of years, and there is a lot of, lot of behind-the-scenes people that you don't see that make this class possible. So we're so grateful for them, as Liz mentioned. Um, what a wonderful conference we had, wasn't it? Um, I'm always saying how the Book of Mormon is just for our time. The, nobody had it before we did uh, through Joseph Smith. The Lord said that the peop- that we would have that we would have uh, His word through Joseph and through this translation of this beautiful book. And um, I felt the spirit of that conference and the testimony of the Book of Mormon and of modern prophets so strongly as we watched this last couple days. So grateful for that to guide us. I wanted to start out by just pointing out these two beautiful pictures. Um, This is my favorite one that talks about um, the the scripture of the Lord knocking at the door, and we'll talk about that a little later, but the image of of the Lord patiently waiting for us to open the door on the other side and um, him ready to give us love and light and truth as we invite him in. And the other picture of the Savior holding up a light, lighting our journey, lighting our path. Um, These will be images that we'll, we'll talk about today, but the Savior is central to the Book of Mormon, the most important Um, figure in the entire Book of Mormon is mentioned hundreds of times and there is no doubt that it testifies of Jesus Christ. So again we have so much material to cover. We're doing Ether 1 through 6 and because there's so much I won't share as many um, other stories or personal ones as focus on this incredible story that um, was so powerful in the Book of Mormon. I've entitled the, this Ether 1 through 6, Rend the Veil of Unbelief. That we need to rend the veil that separates us from the Lord, as the brother of Jared did, literally and spiritually. So the book of Ether covers close to 2,000 years of history. And in itself, this little book could be considered a miniature Book of Mormon. There are, these people were known as the Jaredites, but if you compare the people of, of Lehi, the Lehiites, what you'd call them the Jaredites, these records tell the st- same story that um, all throughout their history, and it is apparent with us as well. So they both deal with people who were led away from a wicked society to the promised land. Both the, the I'm gonna call them the Lehiites and the Jaredites. They both crossed oceans and ships built according to special design revealed by God. They, they were promised a promised land. They sailed to it. They multiplied and spread out. And they had righteous and wicked groups among them. They also had prophets and righteous leaders. They both experienced prosperity during times of righteousness. They both testified of the reality of Jesus Christ. They both had periods of 225 years of continual peace. It's unusual that that was the same amount of of years of peace. They both experienced a major division of the people into two groups. They both had wars and secret combinations. They both experienced great destruction in their their nations, the Jaredites and the Lehiites. They're both destructions are survived by a lone prophet, a record keeper who was rejected and hunted by his people. So you can see how that would be a mini Book of Mormon, this record of the Jaredites. Um, if you remember um, 
that these, these were the um, Book of Ether was abridged by Moroni from the engravings found on the 24 plates of pure gold, which were found by the people of Limhi. And um, it is a second witness of Jesus Christ in the Book of Mormon. It's a record of the Jaredites beginning at the Tower of Babel, probably around 2200 BC and continuing until somewhere um, around 120 BC. So it covers a huge period of time. So it begins when they give a partial account from the tower um, up until when they were destroyed. There's 30 generations that, that happened between Ether and Jared. So we'll begin in 2200 BC in the wicked society associated with the city of Babylon. This was a huge, powerful city that had walls that were 85 feet wide, 335 feet high, and 56 miles long. It was also a city of extreme wickedness and arrogance. The people were building a tower to get to heaven. And I always wondered, why is that such a, I don't know why, why, why was that offensive? What was the understanding about building a tower to get to heaven? But it was in defiance of the Lord, in effect saying that they could do what they wanted. They could get high enough uh, where the Lord couldn't reach them, they couldn't destroy them again as a, in a flood, as he did before. Um, it reminds me of the scripture that says, when they are learned, they think they are wise, and they hearken not to the counsels of God. For they set it aside, supposing they know for themselves. Wherefore, their wickedness is foolishness, and it profiteth them not. And so another explanation of this, of this great tower was they thought that the city of Enoch was caught up a little ways from the earth, and that the city was within the first sphere of the earth. And if they could get a tower high enough, they might get to heaven, where the city of Enoch and the inhabitants were located. So they were basically... Not uh, defying God, not taking into account, um, following his commandments and being a law to themselves, deciding that they would do what they wanted, what they needed to get to heaven with their own power. So um, if we'll just begin in Ether, we're just going to read a lot of these through the, these verses. And um, if you don't mind, I have to keep putting my glasses on and off sometimes. But um, Ether. I've already covered that there are 24 plates. Um, so they give a genealogy from, from 6 till 32 of the people. And then um, as they were building this, now there was Jared and then the brother of Jared. And we'll talk about his name in a minute. But they called him the brother of Jared all throughout this. Um, so Jared was the prophet, and he uh, told his brother to ask the Lord not to confound the language of the people while they were working on this on this tower because that was what the Lord's intent. In verse 33, he, he said that he would confound the language of his people. In verse 34, the brother of Jared told him, cry unto the Lord that he will not confound us that we may not that we may not understand our words. And so I don't know why he, he told him to pray about it. Maybe he had more faith or a better connection with the Lord, but Brother of Jared did this and cried unto the Lord, and through the next few verses, the Lord granted their, their prayers. It didn't confound their language. Think of how important that was. If you couldn't communicate with um, the person that you were working with, that stopped the progress on the tower immediately, and people went off in different directions according to the language they could speak. And so he asked them to preserve their language. Um, this language that they carried with them, the brother of Jared and, and Jared and his families, 
um, was the Adamic language. And Joseph Fielding Smith said, they carried with them the speech of their fathers, the Adamic language, which was powerful even in its written form, so that things that um, Brother of Jared wrote were mighty even unto the overpowering of men to read them. This was the first language, the pure language, and this is the language they carried with them. So um, we wonder about the name of uh, the Brother of Jared, and you've probably heard this account many times, but. Uh, <coughs> While residing in Kirtland, um, Ohio, Elder Reynolds Cahoon had a son born to him. One day when President Joseph Smith was passing his door, he called the prophet in and asked him to bless and name the baby. Joseph did so and gave the boy the name of Mahanrai Moriankamer. What a name, huh? When he had finished the blessing, he laid the child on the bed and turned to Elder Cahoon and said, The name I have given your son is the name of the brother of Jared. The Lord has just shown or revealed it to me. So this was the first time that the brother of Jared's name was known. It may have been the last time the prophet was asked to bless a child. <laughs> you could just hear the mother saying, He named him what? <laughs> Where did that come from? Why did you ask him? He was just walking by. And, uh, but what a great saint and Latter-day um, believer he became, this Mohamnai Moriankamer um, Cahoon. And what a name and heritage he carried that I didn't appreciate as much till I prepared this lesson. What a valiant, wonderful person and prophet this, this man was. And I think I'll call him the brother of Jared. It's easier to say than the other one. But that's the story of his name. So... Um, Carrying on in the scriptures, in uh, verse 38, he asked the Lord if they were going to drive them out of the land, and he said he was, and they wanted to go to a land where they could be free, and he told, the Lord told them in verse 41 to prepare, to gather flocks, to gather seeds, to gather their families. And in verse 42, he said, and when thou hast done this, go to the head of them, a little further down, and there I will meet you, and I will go before you into a land which is choice above all the lands of the earth. And so uh, Joseph Smith, Fielding Smith said this, the Book of Mormon informs us that the whole of America, both, both north and south, is a choice land above all other lands. In other words, this is Zion. And then in verse 34, the Lord speaks, um, personally and says there I will bless thee and thy seed and raise up unto me of thy seed and it goes on to say a great nation and then at the very end of verse 43 it says and thus I will do unto thee because this long time thou has cried unto me this is one of the themes of this lesson is crying or praying unto the Lord um, for for answers to prayers for help for revelation um, President Spencer W. Kimball said, Great decisions must be made by most of us. The Lord has provided a way for these answers. <clears throat> what school should we go to? What occupation? Where to live? Who to marry? Other vital questions. Too often, like Oliver Cowdery, we want our answers without the work. The Lord does answer our prayers, but sometimes we are not responsive enough to know when and, and how they are answered. We want the writing on the wall or an angel to speak or a heavenly voice. Do you, do you not get answers to your prayers? President Kibble asks. If not, perhaps you did not pay the price. Do you offer a few trite words and a few common phrases? 
or do you talk intimately with the Lord? Do you pray occasionally when you should be praying constantly? When you do pray, do you just speak or do you listen? The Savior said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, that's the effort that we open the door um, and invite him in, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. The Lord stand knocking. He never retreats, but he will never force himself upon us. If we ever are more more apart, it is because we moved and not the Lord. It's beautiful. Um, He doesn't retreat from us. He's standing there, and uh, it's up to us to invite him in. And so he talked about that. He said, for a long time you've called upon me, and therefore I will bless you. And so we move into Ether 2, um, and this is, a, this is a great chapter. Of, it's a symbolic of when we obey the commandments of God. As they went on a journey, they went on two journeys. The first one was a shorter one over some waters, it says, and the next one was the, the big one in the barges. But as we continue on our journey through life, as we're headed toward the promised land, symbolically we're headed toward eternal life, exaltation in the celestial kingdom. And just as the brother of Jared, we are going to have our journey is, is sometimes unknown. Sometimes we are going to be tossed in the sea. And it says later, um, when we read this account, that the barges went to the depths of the sea and were brought up again by the Lord. So we are not without um, temptation and without trials. Um, the last couple lessons I talked about um, Moroni and what a heart and Mormon, what a hard lives they led. And we think sometimes that we are exempt from, um, because we keep the commandments and we're trying, that our life will be perfect and everything will go well. Well, this was not the case with those men at all. They had hard, hard lives and saw so much destruction and wickedness and constantly had to rebuke people and had very few friends and allies um, for the cause of, of the Lord. But yet the Lord was with them and they were blessed. And this is like us in our journey. The Lord is with us, but it's not without, without hardship and trial, um, this journey that we're going on. Um, during Ether 2, it talks about how the Lord told them before they went in the next few verses, in verse 2, to lay snares and catch fowls and carry fishes. They also carried, in verse 3, Deseret, which is honeybee, which um, we've adopted as a as um, Latter-day Saints, um, the honeybee is a symbol of industry and of working together, and they carried that with them, and seeds. So the Lord was telling them, he didn't just want them to um, survive, he wanted them to thrive and to bring everything with them so they could be happy and be filled and, and enjoy their life. And so they were very prepared. And so they went on this journey, um, and in verse 4, it says that uh, they're ready to go. The Lord came down and talked with the brother of Jared, and he was in a cloud. But the brother of Jared saw him not, and then he told him where to go. Many times the Lord speaks, uses a cloud to represent his presence. And also it says in, in, in the Doctrine and Covenants that, that the Lord will come with clouds. It's symbolic of his presence and, and, his, and his coming in the second when he comes for the second coming. And they spoke one with another, and this time they traveled in verse six, they did travel in the wilderness and did build barges. Now these weren't the eight barges that they built later, but they crossed many waters and were continually directed by the hand of the Lord. Um, 
It says in verse 7, the Lord would not suffer that they should stop beyond the sea in the wilderness, but he would that they should come forth even into the land of promise, which was choice above all other lands, which the Lord God had preserved for a righteous people. And this is the beautiful part. We have all these inspired learnings in the Book of Mormon, and this is, well, the, the last one that I forgot to emphasize is that we must pay the price in prayer. That was in the last verse, in uh, last chapter, Ether 143. Inspired learning is we must pay the price in prayer, as President Kimball said, and not make it trite and repetitive. And many times if we're not getting answers to our prayers, it's because we have not, we have not worked hard at it. We haven't paid the price. And the second learning is that um, this, this land of America, this North and South America, but um, we're talking about that this is a promised land that the people are blessed if they choose to serve God. And here are the scriptures that we all know are familiar with this. Ether 2, 8 through 10. And he swore in his wrath unto the brother of Jared that whoso should possess this land of promise from that time henceforth and forever should serve him, the true and only God, or they should be swept off. And then in verse 9, um, sorry, we'll go to verse 10. For behold, this is a land which is choice above all other lands. Wherefore, he, he that doth possess it shall serve God or shall be swept off. It is not until the fullness of iniquity among the children of the land that they are swept off. Then verse 12, they're basically saying over and over again, verse 12, this is a choice land, and whatsoever nation shall possess it shall be free from bondage and from captivity and from all other nations under heaven, if they will but serve the God of the land, who is Jesus Christ. That's a pearl. We talk about pearls in the scripture. That is one of the pearls that this land of America will be free from bondage, which it has been, and free from captivity if, it's conditional, if we will serve the God of this land, who is Jesus Christ. We as Latter-day Saints have a huge responsibility to make sure that the Savior is still included in our, in our country. There's so many places that they've taken out the Ten Commandments, they've taken out mentioning God and Jesus Christ, but we are a Christian nation, and we must preserve that. And the majority of the people are, are God-fearing and believing. And we need to fight. We need to make sure, as Paul was, that I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are not ashamed of proclaiming that he is our savior. We're not ashamed of the family proclamation. And we, are, we, we know that it comes from God. And even though it is not politically correct, truth is never popular. It's always persecuted. And we, we will stand for um, this family proclamation with our prophets. And we stand for Christian values. And we can do what we can in our community and with other, others to make sure that this land still serves Jesus Christ. That is our security. That's our, our safety net that we will be um, blessed if we do that. So these people came to the, um, after they went on this, this short journey, they came in verse 13. At the end of 13, it says, they dwelt in tents upon the seashore for the space of four years. And it came to pass at the end of four years that the Lord came again unto the brother of Jared and stood in a cloud and talked with him. And for the space of three hours did the Lord talk with the brother of Jared and chastened him because he remembered not to call upon the name of the Lord. So this is an amazing thing. It's a great 
it's a great um, opportunity for us to learn because a lot of the prophets put, they, they, they're included in the record, mistakes and things that they've done. And Moroni included this about the brother of Jared. So you think, okay, he was so close to the Lord, he asked the Lord to guide them, they, he was with them. What could have happened? He dwelt in the tent for four years uh, right by the seashore, but yet the Lord chastised him for not calling upon his name. How could that have happened? Um, uh, the uh, inspired learning that I would take for this is that we have never arrived. We have never prayed enough or served enough or kept the commandments enough that we can rest on our laurels, that we can say, we're not like, like some would say, we're one and done. I was converted on this day. I know that Jesus is the Christ, and that was my conversion. And I look back to that and back to that every time. But we are Christians that are continually renewing ourselves through new spiritual experiences, through prayer continually. We can't, like the manna that the children of Israel picked up, we have to do this every day. We don't have enough to, on Sunday, come to church and take the sacrament and fill ourselves and fill the spirit, and then we don't think about it again until the next week. And um, this is a common thing that we all struggle with, and apparently the Jaredites did as well, and even the brother of Jared. Um, here's, what, here's what was said about that. It's highly unlikely that a man of the spiritual stature of the brother of Jared, one who had received marvelous manifestations and had previously exercised great faith in the Lord, would suddenly cease praying to his maker. It may be what this verse is saying to us is that Mahamnai Moriankamer was chastened by the Lord because he had not fully implemented the counsels of the Lord previously received. It may be that in the relative comfort of the seashore, he had allowed his prayers to become less fervent more casual and routine. He may have been calling upon the Lord in word, but not in faith indeed. Verse 13 perhaps suggests that they dwelled in tents upon the seashore for the space of four years. The Lord had taught them and prepared them, but it appears that they had tarried too long, for which the brother of Jared was chastised. The messages and applications of this for us today are twofold, that calling upon the Lord is much more than merely saying prayers. President Kimball taught that we would not ask a church leader for advice and then disregard it. We must never ask the Lord for blessings and then ignore the answer. Calling upon the Lord requires not only frequent and fervency of prayer, but also action and commitment to do what the Lord commands. So first, maybe the prayers, as, um, as that sister um, Craven said, that are we, are we, are we casual or careful? Maybe, he, maybe they became casual in their prayers from conference. That was wonderful, what she was, what she was talking about. And maybe this is what happened. And second, from the Lord's chastening the brother of Jared, we see the danger of pausing too long in one place when we need to move forward, upward and onward. Perhaps it was fear of the long ocean journey. Complacency created the comforts of the seashore, the natural tendencies to be commanded in all things that caused them to delay their journey. Whatever the reason, the Lord desired them, as he desires us, to press forward. As President Kimball said when he chastised the church, we have paused on some plateaus long enough. Let us re resume our journey forward. What great application for, our, for us as a church, for us as, as individuals, that um, this is a continual, we need to partake of the atonement continually. We need the Lord 
as the song says, I need thee every hour. We need him constantly. And we don't just do it once and then we're, we're good. Um, Elder Irene has a, I thought this was um, Henry B. Irene, but no, it, yeah, it is, actually is Henry B. Irene. But he says, um, he says, can you hear the sighs of relief as the burdens are set down, the flocks are let to feed in the coastal plain, the tents are pitched, and the place is named for the great leader who brought them through safely. He said, then it becomes harder to see the needs or the blessings when our tents are pitched. It's easy to forget the master and think more of our own part of our courage and exertions. And so um, this, is, this is what happens. This is, this is typical of us. Do you remember after Zion's camp, the Lord chastised the saints? And um, this could apply to us too. In Doctrine and Covenants 101, 7 and 8, this is one of the great failings that we all have. The Lord chastises them, and, and we can think of this personally, when he said, they were slow to hearken into the voice of the Lord their God. Therefore, the Lord their God is slow to hearken unto them to, and to their prayers to answer them in the day of their trouble. In the day of their peace, they esteemed lightly my counsel. But in the day of their trouble, of necessity, they fell after me. Isn't that typical? When we're falling off a cliff, when everything is going wrong, when we're desperate for help, for answers, when we need peace and comfort in our life, we feel toward the Lord. We need him. But when we are in the day of our peace, we esteem lightly his counsel. But the Lord is merciful. He is kind and forgiving. The next verse says, Verily I say unto you, notwithstanding their sins, notwithstanding our sins, in neglecting him sometimes, my bowels are filled with compassion toward them. I will remember mercy. What a beautiful teaching. But something that, that we can all work on is to remember him in the day of our peace. And perhaps this is what happened. We don't really know besides the, uh, what we hear here in the scriptures. But the beautiful part of this lesson is that what happens because of this chastisement. Mohammedai um, Morankamer repents. In verse 15, the brother of Jared repented of the evil which he had done. He called it evil to not remember the Lord's name and did call upon the name of the Lord for his brethren who were with him. And the Lord said unto him, I will forgive thee and thy brethren of their sins, but thou shalt not sin any more, for ye shall remember that my spirit will not always strive with man. And then a little later it says, These are my thoughts. This is how the Lord's thinking, that I will, I will forgive you, but you have to continually come to me. You have to keep repenting. And he being the leader, I guess he was chastised for all of the people that didn't remember to pray sincerely and with great effort to him. What a great, um, what a great learning. Another inspired learning is that repentance brings back teachability. And because he repented, the brother of Jared, um, then, then, went, then was humble and went into action and um, did what was necessary to receive the blessings. So um, the Lord gives him instructions, and he tells him now is when he's going to cross the, the ocean. And, he, and in verse 16 through 18, he tells him about building the barges, and they're very specific to what the Lord has in mind. Something, would you, wouldn't you love, I hope there's like a museum up in the next life that we can see things like the, the barges. Wouldn't that be cool to see these dish-like barges that have a stopper in the top and in the bottom, like a plug that the Lord designed himself. Um, they, they seem so ingenious. It says in verse 17, they were exceedingly tight. He said like 
10 or 15 times. They were tight like a dish. The sides were tight like a dish. The top thereof was tight like a dish. The length was the length of a tree. So these are big barges. The door was shut tight like a dish. And so um, these are real unusual. Men, we wouldn't think of making something like this, but this is what the Lord designed. And he was real specific in what he gave him. He, comm- he told him exactly what he wanted. Um, but then um, in verse 18, he says, he performed the work that he's given me. But then he, the brother of Jared has three problems. First, in verse 19, there is no light. There's no light at all in the vessels. The second problem is, how shall I steer it? How do we control it? Otherwise, we'll be thrown everywhere. And third, how do we breathe? And so I think they made the barges first, and then they answered these, these questions. So the Lord answers, uh, verse 20, he says, make a hole in the top and the bottom and put these plugs in, and then you can, you can get air that way. And so the Lord directs him real specifically about that. He says that um, in verse 24 that he will send that the, the, the winds he will send the winds to steer them that he will steer personally they won't steer but he will steer them but that that he they're going to be going it's going to be it's going to be they're going to be going up and down um, through the winds uh, um, the floods that he has sent forth and then the so he solves those problems but then um, this is this is a different situation then he says but what will you do let's see he says in verse 22 the brother of jared says at the end will thou suffer that we cross this great water in darkness and the lord puts it back on him the lord said to the brother of jared what will ye that i should do that ye may have light in your vessels and he answers well you can't you can't have windows for they will be dashed to pieces and you can't take fire with you and it says in verse 24, you shall be like a well in the midst of the sea, and you'll go up and down. Verse 25, toward the end, therefore, what will you that I should prepare for, for you that you may have light when you are swallowed up in the depths of the sea? So he put the onus back on him. Um, we are not to be commanded in all things. We should, uh, it says in the Doctrine and Covenants, we should do many things of our own free will, for the power is in us. We are agents unto ourselves. The Lord knew he could design something. He had countless ways that he could light those vessels, but he left it to uh, Mohammed to figure that out. And so that what a great what a great lesson. Sometimes do we feel like our prayers aren't what just tell me what to do. We want to an answer to this. Should we move here? Should we have another child? Should I get this education? How can I help my grandkids? How can I help someone that's gone astray? Sometimes we don't get the answers. Sometimes the Lord specifically gives us something like he did with the other two problems, but on this one, he left it to him. Um, Joseph Fielding Smith said, it is contrary to the law of God for the heavens to be open and messengers to come to do anything for man that he can do for himself. And so he, um, he just said, you figure it out. And so he worked hard at it. He had to, he followed Brigham Young's success formula, work as if everything depends on you and pray as if everything depends on the Lord. Isn't that a great, it could be a great mission statement, couldn't it? To do everything you can yourself and then ask the Lord for help. And so he did, he figured it out. He went up to this tall, he went up to this tall mountain um, and he, it's called Shelem, in verse, we're on Ether 3, verse 1. 
exceedingly high mountain, Shalom. It seems like all the prophets and people go to the mountains for inspiration and go somewhere where they can be alone and be with God and hear his voice. And he, he did molten out of a rock, 16 small stones, and they were white and clear as transparent glass. And he carried them in his hands upon the top of the mountain. And he told the Lord, okay, I, I've, I've got a plan. These are, I've got, there's eight barges. I've got 16 of these. Two could go in each one. Um, can you, and he said, I know you have the power to, to light them, to give them to, so that we don't have to go in darkness across the great ocean. It says in verse 3 that in raging deep in the darkness, I know that you have all power in verse 4. Touch these stones, O Lord, with thy finger, and prepare them that they may shine forth in darkness. And so in verse 6, this wonderful vision happened. This great thing happened. It came to pass, the brother of Jared, after he had said these words, Behold, the Lord stretched forth his hand and touched the stones one by one with his finger. And the veil... This is the veil that keeps us from seeing spirits in heaven. Was taken from off the eyes of the brother of Jared, and he saw the finger of the Lord, and it was the finger of a man, likened to flesh and blood. And the brother of Jared fell down before the Lord, and he was struck with fear. And so then there's some question and answers between the Lord and the brother of Jared. Why did you fall? And he said, I, I saw your finger, and I didn't know that you would have flesh and blood. And, um, he, and, and the Lord said, because of thy faith thou hast seen that I shall take upon me flesh and blood. So this is a primo, he's, he's really a spirit, but he is showing him he will, as he will come and administer on the earth in flesh and blood. Um, he hasn't taken that yet, but he is showing that. And never has man come before me with such exceeding faith. And he says, did you see more than that? And he said, nay, Lord, show thyself to me. And in verse 11, believest thou the words that I shall speak? He didn't say, believe the words that I spoke to you. Believe that I shall speak to you. Do you believe that I can do more? And the brother of Jared said, yea, Lord, I know that thou speakest the truth and art a God of truth and cannot lie. And in verse 13, when the Lord had said these things, behold, the Lord showed himself unto him. And said, because thou knowest these things, you are redeemed from the fall, and you are brought back into my presence. Therefore, I show myself to you. Verse 14, this is beautiful language. Behold, I am he who is prepared from the foundation of the world to redeem my people. Behold, I am Jesus Christ. I am the Father, meaning the Creator. I speak for the Father and the Son. In me and through my atonement shall all mankind have life. Even as they believe on my name, they shall become sons and daughters. And so he, in verse 16, he says, Behold this body that I have um, shown you. Verse 19, Because of the knowledge of this man, he could not be kept from beholding within the veil. And he saw the finger of the Lord. And when he saw, he had faith no longer, for he knew nothing doubting. Verse 20, wherefore, having this perfect knowledge of God, he could not be kept from within the veil. Therefore, he saw Jesus, and he did minister unto him. What a beautiful scene, to, uh, the Lord appearing to the brother of Jared, showing himself in, in a flesh and blood body so he could see what he would take on and did minister unto him. We don't know if he blessed him. If he, it was a personal moment for them. Um, the Savior is our is the whole central theme of this of this Book of Mormon, and I'd like to um, my my daughter-in-law Sarah Haller is going to sing a song entitled "Beautiful Savior," and she'll be accompanied by Allison Gill.
so beautiful. Shouldn't have someone sing such a beautiful song and especially one of your beautiful daughter-in-laws. Thank you, Sarah, so much. And thank you, thank you, Allison. You can feel the spirit palpably in the room, can't you? From that, think of the message of that, that we have such a beautiful world. Everything is, is beautiful that the Lord created. But Jesus, Jesus is fairer. Jesus is more beautiful because of the atonement and what he gives to us. I am the light and the light of the world, a light which shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. We are taught in conference that comprehendeth it not because the darkness cannot distinguish the light. It cannot extinguish it. It does not go out. The light penetrates, as you see, the Savior holding up the light and lighting our path. Thank you for that beautiful song and that message. And what symbolism is in this, this uh, in ether, that the, uh, Jesus is both the rock of our salvation and the light of our lives. We rely on him as our rock-solid foundation in life and as the light for our path as we cross the treacherous seas of mortality. So the brother of Jared's having him touch these rocks, like the Savior, the, the solid rock foundation. And what does he ask him to do? Bring them, give them light and they can cross without um, going in darkness. Symbolic of our journey through life, we need to build on the true foundation, Jesus Christ. Um, one of my favorite scriptures that I've said a few times is uh, Helaman 5 and 12. 
Um, now remember, my sons, that is upon the rock of our Redeemer, who is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that you must build your foundation. That when the devil shall send forth his mighty winds, yea, his shafts in the whirlwind, it shall have no power to drag you down to the gulf of misery and endless woe because of the rock upon which you are built, which is a sure foundation, a foundation whereon if men build, they cannot fall. This is the rock of our salvation, Jesus Christ, and the light and life of the world. I pray, I bear my testimony that this is true, that he is our Savior, our beautiful Savior, and that as we seek him daily, like we need the manna every day, we need the bread of life, we eat bread every day. He is the bread of life. We need that daily. We can't rely on our past spiritual experiences to carry us. As we do that, we will be carried. We will also carry through this journey and arrive at our destiny um, in the celestial kingdom. That's our goal for exaltation. Um, President um, Hunter observed this. There is interesting symbolism in the account of the Savior touching the stones that lead the way for the Jaredites. Whatever Jesus lays his hands upon lives. If Jesus lays his hand upon a marriage, it lives. If he is allowed to lay his hands on the family, it lives. That's beautiful. And so, um, because of the knowledge, uh, the faith that he had, he had pure knowledge, he knew he could see God. Joseph Fielding McConkie said, knowledge and faith are not antithetical, nor are they on opposite ends of a continuum. God possesses all knowledge and all faith. And so um, this enabled him to rend the veil that separates us, and he was able to see the Savior. Um, Okay, we better move on. We just have a few more minutes, and they haven't even gone on their journey yet. (laughs) So we go to Ether 4. Um, This is when they... um, Ether 4, we'll just briefly say, this is the the scripture that I got in verse 15. It says, when they shall rend, rend means tear away, that veil of unbelief, um, that goes down a little further, with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, then shall you know that the Father hath remembered the covenant which he made unto the fathers. We must rend the veil of unbelief before our eyes, which is like a veil over us, keeping us from seeing God. Maybe we wouldn't see him with our physical eyes as he did, as he was allowed to show us this example. But, but we can see God in our lives if we can win that veil of sin and wickedness that we keep going to. Um, if we keep repenting and partake of the atonement, we can do as the brother of Jared did and, and, and see Jesus before us. So we go to um, Ether 5. Let's see. Oh, I forgot. To, this, this great quote by Elder Holland helps make this scripture applicable about seeing Jesus. The Book of Mormon is predicated on the willingness of men and women to rend the veil of unbelief in order to behold the revelations. It would seem that the humbling experiences of the brother of Jared in his failure to pray and his consternation over the 16 stones were included in this account to show just how mortal and just how normal he was. So very much like the men and women we know, and at least in some ways so much like ourselves, ordinary individuals with ordinary challenges could rend the veil of unbelief and enter the realms of eternity. 
ordinary people like us. He was ordinary as well and struggled with things, but he repented and partook of the atonement, and that is available to each of us. So in Ether 5, this is where Moroni speaks directly to Joseph Smith and told him not to attempt to translate the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon. That was for later. He also told him that there would be other witnesses, which would be a huge relief to Joseph Smith to not carry the burden alone. Three witnesses, three special witnesses that would see the angel, that would touch the plaints, that would fill them and, and heft them and physically know that they existed. What a burden that was relieved from him. And also eight other witnesses. Imagine those, those men uh, reading this in the Book of Mormon and coming to Joseph and saying, can we be those three witnesses? Can this be us? And Joseph said that he, they petitioned him over and over, and he went to the Lord, and they, he granted that, that you will, be, you will be the three witnesses. What a blessing for them, for all their work that they, that they did to help Joseph. And what a relief for the prophet to have someone else be a witness also. So Ether 6, they finally board the eight ships and, and go on this journey. President Spencer Kimball said, this unparalleled journey should intrigue navigators. The first recorded ocean crossing was about 40 centuries ago of seaworthy ocean-going vessels without known cells, without engines, oars, or rudders, eight barges like and near contemporary with Noah's Ark, long as a tree, tight as a dish, peaked at the end like a gravy boat. I don't know, what's a gravy boat? <laughs> Corked at top and bottom, illuminated by molten stones, perhaps with radium or some other substance not yet rediscovered by our scientists. Light and like a fell upon the water, this fleet of barges was driven by winds and ocean currents, landing at a common point in North America, probably on the west shores. This was by President Kimball. What an what a unparalleled journey and what, uh, what vessels that they were carried that had never been seen. No way to steer, no way to control anything, and yet they, um, they, they survived and the Lord blessed them. So this is a beautiful chapter, um, Ether 6. It says that they crossed, in verse 3, the Lord caused stones to shine in darkness to give light unto men, women, and children that they might not cross the great waters in darkness. The Lord is merciful and wants to bless us. And then it said that they had been prepared. They had prepared, verse 4, all manner of food, and they had supplies, and they had animals, and they had things with them. And at the end of verse 4, commending themselves unto the Lord their God turning themselves over to God, trusting in him. Like it says in, in Proverbs, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not to thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he will direct thy paths. What an appropriate scripture for what they were doing. They had to totally rely on him in this journey. And they commended themselves to God. That's a beautiful, a beautiful thought. And verse 5, the Lord caused a furious wind to blow upon them toward the promised land. And in verse 6, these are the trials that they faced like we face. There were many times they were buried in the depths of the sea because of the mountain waves which broke on them and also the great and terrible tempests which were caused by the fierceness of the wind. Verse 7, it came to pass they were buried in the deep. There was no water that could hurt them, their vessels being tight like a dish. They were... Um, and they did cry unto the Lord, and he did bring them forth again upon the tops of the waters. 
verse 8, and the wind did never cease to blow toward the promised land. Symbolic of, of the Lord for us. He never ceases to be there. He never ceases to hold the light up, to knock at the door. He never ceases to call us. He never ceases to forgive us. The, the whole way through the journey, I'm sure they were so fearful many times when they were, they were plunged down to the depths and they, were, they said that they were creatures there. They said the monsters, verse 10, and they were driven forth and no monster of the sea could break them, neither well could mar them. Um, and they did have light continually, whether it was above the water or under the water. So those stones glowed the entire time. And do you know how long the, the journey was? It was almost a year. It was almost a full year. 344 days took to the promised land, like about what, what Noah's ark was. Almost a year, they exercised faith. They continually cried unto the Lord over and over. Verse, verse 9, they did sing praises unto the Lord, praises of gratitude and optimism. They did thank and praise the Lord all the day long, and when the night came, they did not cease to pray unto the Lord. And then in verse 11 is when it says how long the journey was. And they did land upon the shore of the promised land, and they bowed themselves down upon the face of the land, and did humble themselves before the Lord, and did share tears of joy before the Lord because of his tender mercies over them. And so what, 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 a, what an amazing journey. Um, Ezra Taft Benson said this, men and women who turn themselves over to God will find that that he can make more of their lives than they can. If we turn ourselves unto God, we commend ourselves to God, as they said, and, and trust in him. Even when we're diving down to the bottom of the ocean and we look at, at the, there were wells, there were monsters in the sea, they had the winds, it lasted a long time, and they continually prayed to God, sang prizes to him, and the Lord heard their prayers, and the light did not fail. And so um, I... I want to bear my testimony. This has been a wonderful uh, journey for me to teach for four years. And I've learned more than any of you. And it's like that scripture that I said before, that, um, that you only seek the Lord when you're in trouble as, as, as diligently. And I, I don't know if I'll study as hard on my own as I have to prepare for these lessons because you just uh, need the Lord's help so much, and you rely on the Spirit so much. But I, I want you to know that I know that the Savior is real. I know that he loves us, that he is standing as a beacon of light for us. I, the times that I have paid the price in prayer, the times that I have I've tried to repent and to keep the commandments more fully and to turn to him have been the times when I have felt his influence in my life, guiding me. He has never failed me. And I know the Book of Mormon, above anything, is a scripture for our time. It's a handbook and a guidebook to get us through this world that is, is wonderful but yet terrifying at the same time and becoming more and more wicked. But I love President Nelson's optimism and his enthusiasm for the end of the world and for the things that are to come. He is, not, um, he is not negative in the least. He is excited. He says, take your vitamins, get in shape. There's so much coming. We need you. There's an unprecedented amount of revelation of things that are coming to us, and we've been seeing that. We have a prophet of God who guides us, 
and um, in President Nelson, I know that, and the Lord is with him and with all of us as we pay the price. Um, we need to turn ourselves under, over to God and commend ourselves to him and trust in him, and he will bless us. I am the light and light of the world, a light that shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. The light will never be extinguished by the darkness. It will always survive, and the Lord will bless us. I say these things um, with all my heart. I feel the Spirit strongly today. I'm grateful for um, you who are coming to learn and listen, and all of us that, that need the Lord in our lives every day. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.